Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and co-hosting with me today is, you guessed it, Kristen Palacy. Welcome back. Thank you. You are so close to being done with chiropractic school, I can taste it. Me too. And I'm excited for it too, because you're great at what you do. And you're also a new doula on a quest, on a mission, and you're also a new mom. Well, a year. How how long do you stay a new mom? I I mean... Forever? I still feel like a new dad. (laughs) Maybe until my kids have kids. Anyway, thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Very exciting guest today, different than most of the topics that we cover. Uh, we have Dr. Britta Bushnell. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Elliot. I'm happy to be here. I have had heard your name many times before I met you in person. I think the first time I met you in person was at a birth, and it was uh, out-of-the-ordinary birth, and not that any birth is ordinary, but this one was a prodromal labor, which we're going to do a whole episode on, a labor that just goes on forever, days, and it feels like you're in labor, it seems like you're in labor, and it's just not quite there yet, and it's not really active or making progress. Oftentimes when I see prodromal labor, it turns into a very medically uh, interventional event. And I came onto this birth probably three days into it. Three or four. Or four days into Mm -hmm. it on Christmas when I had nothing else to do anyway with my Jewy self. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, And it was amazing to me how much uh, energy and confidence and strength uh, the laboring mom had uh, and that you had. And it was also kind of amazing to me that after three or four days of supporting her, um, you just were still there for the parts that you were awake. You were still there for every surge, every wave, uh, right there with her in her face, helping her. And she just clinged on to everything that you were saying and talking about. Um, It was really kind of uh, amazing. And then, you know, I think we disappeared into the shower for a couple of hours so you and and her partner could sleep. And um, she felt really great in the shower laboring. And then, you know, things eventually picked up. And then you just kicked right back into it as if it was day one. So I was really impressed. And I'm in this unique position that that, uh, Kristen may get also, which is that because we do body work while people are in labor, we get to watch some of the great doulas. Um, do their work and learn from those experiences. And that one really added a lot to what I I think I offer. It really opened up my eyes to how things could be. Um, And so what I want to do is a little bit get, I know that doula is not your main thing right now, but uh, unfortunately for the laboring women of America, but what I'd like to do is find out more about your background because you have a lot of uniqueness and diversity uh, and also about the very unique thing that you do. Uh, I mean, I said Dr. Britta Bushnell, you have a PhD, recent PhD in mythology. Yes, I do. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, your doctoral dissertation was Forceps and Candles, Cultural Myths in American Childbirth. Uh, All very fascinating. Where did it all begin? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And yes, I remember that that particular birth very well. And I remember you sweeping in and, and ushering the laboring individual into the bathroom and, and being so supportive of of what happened next. And 
and in the process gave me a little bit of a break. So I also really want to thank you for that <laughs> experience. I feel like my role was small compared to the four-day marathon. That it you was, all it had, was a but. wonderful experience. So um, in regards to my history and my path to childbirth, I really came to childbirth through originally through yoga. I was the general manager of Yoga Works on Montana Avenue in Santa Monica back when that was just one, one studio. One studio? One wow. studio, a single Whoa. studio before it became a cross, you know, nation and international force of yoga. It was it was just one studio with two rooms. And you were the GM. And I was the general manager. Wow. And I also taught yoga. And when I was, How did you get into yoga in the first place? Oh, that's a story, too. Ooh. So I was traveling after I graduated from university around the world doing kind of that backpacking on a shoestring kind of experience and ended up in India. And I was uh, the woman that I was traveling with at the time. Her mother is a yoga teacher, a local yoga teacher in Santa Monica. And she said, I'm going to go study with my teacher. And why don't you two come with me? And I thought, yoga, India, that goes nicely together. Great. I'll go do yoga. I had never done a down dog in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in India, and I end up at Patabi Joyce's Ashtanga Yoga Studio in Mysore, southern India, truly having never done a down dog. And I met the, uh, the, then, yoga, the, the, the then owners of Yoga Works, Chuck and Mati, while I was there. And we had an instant connection and friendship. And they said, when you get back to the States, call us up. We'd love to hire you. Hmm. And wow. not, not to teach. I was still, again, had just learned how to do down dog. Mm -hmm. So they weren't offering me a teaching job, but they, we had hit it off and they really liked my energy and said, we'd, we'd love to hire you. So in fact, when I got back to the States some months later, I called them up and I said, were you serious? And they said, yes, when can you start? And I said, well, give me a couple days to make the decision. And then the Northridge earthquake happened. Oh, wow. wow. And I called them and I said, so were you still serious? And they said, yes, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> oh, wow. And so I made my decision to move to Southern California and to take that job the day of the Northridge earthquake. Wow. And moved down and became... That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, there would not probably not be another big quake for a while. So, <laughs> good thinking. So I moved down right after that one. But yes. by then you had done a couple of cat cows at least. I did. Okay. I had I had progressed through first series of Ashtanga Yoga and, and Chuck and Mati had become friends and teachers. And then I worked at Yoga Works. And the very first day I was at Yoga Works, I met my now husband. Whoa. And I had committed to staying for one year. And it, that was 24 years ago, almost 24 years ago. And you're so, still here. And I'm still here. <laughs> wow. Oh, good. So, it's been quite so a year. It has been a long, a long year. <laughs> such an exciting <laughs> very, story. Yeah. Very long year. Seriously. We're going on a, a quarter century. But yes, I've been here a long time. But an undergraduate, you, you studied psychology. I did. I studied psychology. And then I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I just was following my nose. And yoga felt like the next thing. And went to Yoga Works and worked there for several years. And when I uh, married my husband and then started teaching and when we became pregnant with our first son, it was sort of a natural progression to start teaching the prenatal yoga. Yeah. I had already been uh, teaching and running the children's program because I, I was a birthday party clown in college and mm. I've always been kind of really uh, – Kind of a little crazy and a little fun and playful. Animated. And animated mm. and enjoy all of that. And so working with the kids was a natural place for me to put put those skills into practice with yoga. So then I started teaching prenatal yoga and taught all through my first and second pregnancy, as well as the time between. But I had an experience where I noticed that parents were coming back after they had given birth and they would say to me, you know, no, 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 you don't understand. My birth was really intense. Hmm. And I thought, well, yeah, birth can be very intense. So what is it that's giving these parents the experience that it was something other than what they expected? That were they expecting it to be something calm and, and easy? And was there some way in which in my classes, I was communicating that you could just 
breathe or just yoga your way through labor. And having already given birth, I was like, no, sometimes it takes a little more than that. Mm -hmm. And so I then decided to deepen my training. And I had loved the Birthing From Within book during my first pregnancy. And I looked online, and sure enough, there was a training coming up within a month. And so I went, and I loved it, and it felt like a, a real connection to a lot of things that were already true for me and felt alive, and it was a language that spoke really deeply to me. So I came back and went right back into teaching my prenatal yoga, but as was the case with how the... I was also in charge of all the workshops at Yoga Works, and so my boss had said, you do a workshop. Now you do a workshop here because you've now got this experience. And so I taught my very first childbirth class at Yoga Works in Santa Monica to 23 individuals, which is far more than I will ever teach again. But mm. I was novice and unex- inexperienced and had no idea that was way too many <laughs> to have in one class. But it was a fabulous experience. I loved it. To be it. able to give them each the individual Yeah, and I or? the way that I teach is very integrated, very deep, and I ask a lot of questions. It's emotional. It's very deeply just, emotionally it just connected. Popped in my head that I had two of your students as patients uh, very recently, and one of them, she was like, "Yeah, I cried all weekend. It was amazing." And just, I was like, <laughs> "Okay." <laughs> yeah, well, emotion is is a helpful lubricant in labor, mm-hmm. and so it can be a helpful thing to have in classes as well, to to really move people through uh, blocks and and concerns and watching couples really. Work Work together is is something that I particularly love doing and, and focusing on in my classes. So you can say that, that it went from yoga to the birthing from within. And after a very short period of time with birthing from within, I was uh, – I spoke with the the founder and the head of birthing from within and said I think you need some help. Let's let's really make some things happen here and and another my roommate from my advanced training Virginia Bobro was also uh, with me and we said let's help Pam. And so we became partners. The, Pam England. the three of us became became partners with Pam England in the birthing from within and and then traveled uh, and taught workshops and really helped bring a lot of energy and, and life into birthing from within, which we all believed so strongly in. Can you and like give was, an underlying, yeah. if there's a, a phrase that sort of captures what birthing from within is? Well, um, first of all, I should say I'm no longer a birthing from within mentor. So mm-hmm. that that has shifted. But, but the philosophy still rings pretty true in my heart and in my, my being. So in that, I would say that it's a very non-judgmental approach that looks at birth without uh, any preconceived ideas of what's best or what's, you know, this is the right way and this is the wrong way. It really says your way, whatever is best for you. Mm. And even if you think you know what's best for you, you don't necessarily know what your birth will be like. And so how do you arrive to your labor experience, to your birth experience, to your new parenting experience with an openness and a flexibility, as well as looking at all of those things as really a rite of passage. And that is part of what then led me to take the next step in my path to go and study more deeply rites of passage and mythology because in birthing from within integrates some of that into their approach they really want to say you know birth birth can be challenging it can absolutely be challenging and sometimes that challenge is exactly what we need to dig deeply inside ourselves mm-hmm. and take ourselves to the next level to go someplace deeper so that we can learn to be open to the unbidden, learn to be flexible, and because parenthood, parenthood certainly requires that oh, of us. Oh, I've been learning. Yes. I, uh, I, I usually, when, when patients ask me during pregnancy about a birth plan, you know, what do you think about my birth plan? Is there a birth plan I can, you can recommend? And um, when I teach also childbirth education with my wife, our, our concept on birth plan is always a flow chart. It's sort of like 
I think what many people envision as their birth plan, in my mind, is page one of a flow chart. That's what you're aiming for, perhaps. But you have no idea what will actually happen, even sometimes like right now I have a patient who's had this wonderful vision that she's working on and, and really thought through lots of different things that can come up and how she'd want to proceed if they happen. Uh, and as it turns out, she's got placenta previa, and um, she may not even get to page one of that birth plan. So I like the way you're talking about being just open to to change and being open to whatever happens, but also it sounds like setting your intention on how you'd like things to happen. Yeah, I would say intention is the word that I definitely prefer to plan because mm -hmm. plan implies control. Mm -hmm. And I actually think rites of passage as, as part of how they are set up imply actually a little bit of letting go of control. Now, I'm not talking about cons <laughs> consent and and um, actually being able to voice your, your desires and have choice, but I am talking about control. Control meaning, you know, the control, if you look in mythology, one of the worst things you could do against the gods was to have hubris, to believe that you had knowledge and experience that was greater than what the gods had. Mm -hmm. And Greek mythology, for example, has lots of stories where the gods are punishing the, the hubris humans. And it's that kind of, of control that I'm talking about in regards to childbirth, that there are things outside of our control. And how we face and, and rise to those challenges is, is really one of the things that is tested in the rite of passage of childbirth that actually helps us learn how to be humble parents. And, you know, as parents, we need to be humble because mm -hmm. it's a hard job and it's, and it's a brilliant job and it's joyful and it brings us to our knees very often. And if we head into parenthood believing that just by doing it, quote unquote, right, we will be able to make it happen in the way that we have envisioned perhaps since childhood, you know, oh, what it would be like to be a parent. Some of us have fantasized about being a parent for years and years, if not decades. And then we become parents and we're like, oh. <laughs> what well, would happen to my fantasy? Uh, yeah. I fantasize I would like to be a child. but um. <laughs> yeah. And so I think a ch uh, childbirth can be a place where we, we learn to be open to the unbidden. Unbidden meaning that which we do not pick or choose. I feel like well, this should be like elementary school. Yeah. would be a great place to start that conversation. It, it would. And as parents who have have gone through a rite of passage, which childbirth very much is, with that awareness of, wow, okay, how do I open to that which I do not choose or select in particular ways? I can influence things, but mm -hmm. I cannot ultimately control. When we parent understanding that, our children get that as well. Mm-hmm. So you could say that, yeah, kindergarten would be great, but let's go even back to, you know, the very first days of, of early postpartum, mm -hmm. you know, newborn phase for children. Yeah. I remember That's being hungry. Concept. You Sorry? I remember being hungry. <laughs> being hungry. In that phase. <laughs> you, I mean, Kristen, you just had a baby a year ago. Did you do a formal childbirth preparation program? I did. I took Bradley Method uh, course or... Um, Bradley Method classes. How was it for you, the, the classes? I think it was good, but I think the it uh, was what was the best part for me, I guess, and my my husband was the how we learned to communicate or the, the exercises we did together was my favorite part. Not necessarily. I don't think we used one position we learned. You oh, know? so for you it was more about the relationship building? Yes. Than about the labor? Yeah. Or even I feel sometimes it was very, I mean, not for any reason, I guess, or the other, or not that I'm judging it, but it made me at times feel like I had to have a very specific way to birth. And I was just, I mean, my life at that point, I had no control over because I was in chiropractic school at the time. And so I was just like, well, I might have a midterm or a final or 
good luck with that. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't really try to plan a very structured birth plan. Um, I was it was more about figuring out when I'm in pain, this is what I would like, or so that he could learn that maybe it's I wouldn't like the same things that he would like. Hmm, that was a very interesting. I think that was my favorite exercise. It was like. Um, write down what you think in this situation, what you would do for yourself and then now compare it to your partners. And it was so different. And they're like, so remember in that time, they may want this or that. I'd be curious to take it one step further. You write down what you think he He would would want. want. (laughs) Now it's the dating game, the the newlywed game. So I think that was my my favorite part. I like to take it even one step further than that. And maybe they did this in your class where we actually have partners supporting moms, and then we have moms supporting partners Mm. physically. I mean, one of my Uh, business names is Embotica because, and it's derived from, you know, kind of putting together the idea of embodiment. And part of the way that I think it's really important to learn is to actually feel it in your body, to, to try it on. And often the way we support is the way we want to be supported. Mm. And so often partners start to support their their laboring uh, partner, and they they do it the way they think they want it done, and they and often you know the laboring individual is like, no, that did not work for me. That's what you want, but that's not what I want. Right. And so then they get to try it the other way, and then the laboring individual also gets the experience of saying, you know, oh, actually, as I'm trying to do this to my partner, I'm realizing I want them to touch me this way because they learn as they do it. And so being in that experience of actually going through it, in my classes, we do a lot of pain coping practice and not just to find ways to, you know, I mean, I teach four or five, depending on the style of class I'm teaching, different practices to support and help with intensity or pain or whatever word you want to use for it. But whether or not couples use those specific practices isn't as important as how do they learn how to work together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do they you know, get a dress rehearsal for what do you do if if she's really uncomfortable and what do you do if she's asking for help and what do you do if she says don't touch me what do you do i mean all of those various things and actually put them into practice i call the doula <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> well certainly that can be, that can be very helpful this is my my wife and i learned uh, over we've been married at over 20 years now and we learn from each other about gift giving like sometimes I'll give her a gift and she'll be like what is this but then the next birthday I'll get something very similar and I'm like oh this is cool <laughs> and she's like yeah I know because you got it for me last year and yeah. and vice versa uh, also when I did my doula training I was I think there were 28 other doula trainees um, I was one of only two males in the room the other one was I think two and a half months old and uh <laughs> <laughs> Pretty occupied, um, breastfeeding most of the time. But um, it's kind of neat. I, I thought I was doing great. And then on the third day, she said, okay, now we're going to role play. And all of a sudden, I found myself being a laboring woman supported by a doula and interrupted by a nosy mother-in-law. Um, and my doula was my wife. It just happened to be. And um, I recommend her. She's She was a great doula for me. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I think surviving that made us realize our marriage is going to last. Uh, that was an awkward moment. We never foresaw <laughs> one when we were dating. Um, yes. I can really get into character. I want a, a couple of definitions before we take a yes. quick break. Rite of passage, right? You mm-hmm. keep referring to rite of passage. I what do you do. mean by that? Well, there's a couple of different definitions, but one of the ones that, that I really like to, to use is really an initiation that takes you from one stage of being to another. Okay. And there's there's different ways of looking at that. Um, there's a school of thought that says that rites of passage in tribal cultures are actually a are modeled after the journey that a woman goes through giving birth. And there's also a school of thought that says, oh, well, wait a minute, childbirth is like a rite of passage and looks at tribal initi- initiations and says, oh, look 
childbirth is like that. So it's one of those chicken or the eggs hmm. situation. We don't know. Is, there's, is that there's, like his TV reflection of us or a right. reflection of TV? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it, uh, often rites of passage are uh, described as, as initiations in adolescence given to both you know young men and young women. Um, and and childbirth is fits my definition of it being an initiation of period or a, an experience that takes you from one existence to another. It takes you from being a non-parent to being a parent, mm-hmm. especially the first one. Right, and that really is a transformative experience. A both socially as well as physically and practically, but it gives you a new identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much so that you get a new name on the other side. Right. You get called mom, dad, papa, you know, mother, whatever the various different terms are that are used. It's a new identity. And for many years, we tend to hear that name used more than our first name. Like, I, for years, I was mom more than I was Britta. Like, I rarely heard Britta, you know, because yeah. you have kids, right? Yeah. We call and each other just, uh, mom, mom and dad. And, and, and it starts to be You lose your previous identity totally. Right. And yes. uh, it's interesting because I'm thinking about it as a partner, as a dad, in my case. Um, and I didn't give birth, but I feel like that childbirth experience, I understand what you're saying was a rite of passage. Absolutely. Um, and then, uh, you know, other people become parents in other ways. Yes, they do. And sometimes don't have this exact rite of passage, but they have another rite of passage. They um, do. Well, the rite of passage doesn't isn't defined as having specific it, – it doesn't say it has to look this way. Right. It's looking more at a, a group of rites and saying these all have some of these similar elements, you know, or some, some forms of, of um, transition that mark transition. Now, one of the elements that it's talked about in many rites of passage is an element of challenge, or an element of ordeal is sometimes the word that is used, that you face some kind of an ordeal. Now, there's lots of different ways to become a parent where you face an ordeal, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's through adoption or through in vitro or through, you know, surgery pain and, yeah, mm-hmm. or through surgery. There's not, you don't get to pick most, oftentimes you don't get to pick your version of ordeal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of the inherent piece within the rite of passage is that that part where you lose a little bit of control, that you don't get to choose. You don't get the designing feature of, oh, I'm going to select my rite of passage. You know, I'm going to pick this one. You you mentioned your client that is dealing with placentia previa. Mm-hmm. I had a client many years ago who w- had planned a home birth and had a very specific idea, and she was really ready for the ordeal of the physical challenge of labor mm-hmm. and found out six weeks before her baby was due that she had placentia previa, mm-hmm. and her ordeal completely turned Change. on its head. Yeah. Yeah. And going Sometimes through people my class, find out they have a breached baby and their yes, ordeal completely turns completely on its head. Completely turns, turns around. <laughs> and, yeah. and so the way that I teach my classes and the way I work with, with families is to say, we don't know what your ordeal will be like, but let's get you ready for mm-hmm. whatever your transformative experience is going to be, whatever that looks like. I'm fascinated. And I could tell already that you have way too much that I need to know about to cover in one podcast. Um, We're going to take a little break for a word from a sponsor, but when we come back, I want to dig more deeply into mythology specifically. Fabulous. Come right back. We're going to be here with Britta Bushnell on Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. 
This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, here with co-host Kristen Palacy and our guest, Dr. Britta Bushnell. We're talking mythology. Um, I, You know, my kids are really into mythology. Some of them, I believe, are mythologists. They come up with a lot of interesting myths. Um, and I never really got into it. So if, if you take someone like me, and where do you start? What is mythology? And you have a doctorate. You have a PhD in mythology. I do, but don't don't assume that that means I know every Greek myth that is out there because my my PhD was more of kind of a survey course. We looked at religions and mythologies of the world all over the place rather than just diving deep into Greek mythology. Sure. A lot of people when they hear, "Oh, you have a PhD in mythology, so can we talk?" and they pull out some obscure mythological uh, entity from Greek mythology and I'm like, "Well, no. I may not know that one." <laughs> <laughs> so um, but in a broad sense. Yes, but in the broad sense. So the definition and the way that I use mythology predominantly is uh, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. So they are, they are parts of um, all cultures all over the place. And in my dissertation, I actually looked at myths that we tell ourselves, stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves in American culture and saying, oh, hey, we, we tell our, ourselves a story about control and a story that we need to be in control. We tell ourselves a story about freedom. We have these very diff these different cultural stories that masquerade a little bit like history in the U.S., mm -hmm. so they get a little conflated, but they show up in birth. They show up in how so? in how you well we've talked we've talked a little bit about about control and how um, that that's a um, a myth that we talk about in our culture that we have control over what we do. Another one is. Um, about technology. We have a reverence for technology in this culture. And uh, there's a story that whatever is newest, whatever has um, technology has brought us most clo closest to innovation, that must be what's best. Mm -hmm. And that shows up in birth substantially. Sure. And so I, I looked at some of uh, some of those, but then I also look at myth in terms of stories, ancient stories, and how those have some things that can teach us about birth. So, for example, one of my favorites is talking about Artemis and Apollo. And Artemis and Apollo are two Greek gods. And Artemis is generally one of the goddesses that is seen as the goddess of childbirth mm -hmm. in, in the main pantheon. And she is assumed to be the goddess of childbirth because when her mother went into labor, she had a very difficult labor. And Artemis is a twin. So that her mother had both Apollo and Artemis in utero. And finally, her mother gave birth to, to Artemis. And as is true in many mythologies, Artemis sprouted out, you know, fully uh, into her adolescent self, ready to, to take on the world. And she helped midwife her mother's birth of her brother, Apollo. Her twin brother. Her twin brother. Mm. Right. So that's the assumed reason 
that she is one of the the Greek goddesses of childbirth. Hmm. So much so that that people would go to her temples um, when they were pregnant and ask for ease during labor, um, give give offerings, sacrifices of this of different sorts to say, hey, watch out for me, hmm. Artemis in childbirth. But I actually think there's another reason that Artemis is the Greek goddess of childbirth. And that is because Artemis is the goddess of the wild. Mm. She's the goddess of the area outside of the city limits. She belongs in the wilderness. Her, her favorite beings are the creatures of the forest. She lives, um, she m- prefers the darkness. She doesn't like to be observed at all. Like mm. if you hear stories about Artemis, she takes people down. If they if they look at her without her approval. And so she's really this this creature that that loves the seasons and connects to cyclical time and agricultural time and the wild and lives very close to life and death. And I think those reasons help to create a place for her as the goddess of childbirth, because as doulas, you know, we know that childbirth requires a little bit of that wild energy, that that uncivilized part of us that gets a little raw and grounded and lives close to the earth. Mm. But it, what's interesting is that what is often the case in mythology is that twins are often meant to uh, symbolize two sides of the same coin. And so Artemis being the wild, has a twin brother who is all about culture. And our culture really is a lot like what Apollo reveres. He likes structure and order and things that make sense and that can be relied upon. He likes linear things, time and, and music and uh, things that can be predictable. Mm-hmm which is very much like our birth culture. Even, you know, in hospitals, it's, it's, got, it's a very Apollonian kind of way. We want to be cultured and civilized. And yet birth meets in the world between these two, between Apollo and Artemis in this culture, and says, wow, okay. So if birth is very, if, if uh, the location of many births in our culture is Apollonian. It's that civilized kind of um, bright lights and uh, linear thinking. But the nature of birth is much more Artemisian in that wild, raw, animalistic place. We kind of need to learn a little bit about both of these. And so I, I in my classes, talk about these two and sort of understanding how that works, in part because parents going into labor, they it's they move into a more um, not unconscious, but a you know when when the new brain gets kind of fuzzy from labor land, and they move into more of a um, connected more deeply to the, their mammalian brain, their unconscious becomes more active. Mm. And the unconscious responds really well to symbolism, to story, to metaphor. And so if I teach in that way, teach knowing that when they're in labor, they're able to access metaphor, symbol, and story then I know that the PowerPoint that I'm doing isn't necessarily going to stick in labor, but the story will. Let me just—I'm fascinated. I could just sit here and listen. But a, a few things popped up in my yes. head. First of all, the unconscious, 
I think sometimes is mistaken for a state of being unconscious, which is not what you're talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. Yes, thank you. You're talking about consciousness versus the unconsciousness. If your mind was sort of an iceberg, the consciousness would be the little tip at the top that you're thinking about experiencing right now in the present, and the unconsciousness sort of as like a warehouse of everything that you've learned, experienced, and, and felt in the past. And things can bubble up from the unconscious to the conscious at various times. Beautiful metaphor. Exactly. Thank you very much. Right? <laughs> I love metaphors. So, yes. <laughs> and then, Thank you for clarifying. Um, in terms of the brain, so animals have uh, a more of an older br- mm-hmm. older t- type brain that's been around forever. And as we've evolved, we've developed this neocortex, neocortex. this newer brain, where yes. we have this higher functioning capability to rationalize and think about things and look at PowerPoint slides and take in those details and weigh and measure mm-hmm. Uh, risks and benefits, for example. So part of childbirth education or helping somebody get ready for the experience that they haven't had um, is teaching some of the different phases and things and and tests and other changes that might come up and how to recognize them and what's happening at those times. And I think it's a difficult balance for childbirth educators because to some degree you need that that data, you need to walk into, it's sort of like part four of the board exam for chiropractors. It's a totally different exam than anything else. It's not written. It's not paper. It's you walk in and there are actors. And if you've never seen it before, you can feel grossly unprepared walking into it. So you need enough data to know how this is going to, like you're not underprepared for a new type of um, experience or task. But so much data can really bog down your neocortex and Mm -hmm. not let you relax into the um, mammalian brain that has the real instructions for your body, just like your body takes a sperm and egg and sometimes a beer and makes a child out of it Mm -hmm. without you thinking about it too much, um, you know, delivering the finished products, those those instructions are built into you. But I like your your concept of of the idea is sort of to shift back into those instructions where you're not going to be thinking about every detail. But it it sounds like you plant some seeds that can still offer some uh, an individual something to mm-hmm. grasp on, lean on, learn from, be guided by. Absolutely. So that, I mean, the part part that you're talking about, that neocortex, is really that Apollonian part, you know, and that is the cultural piece. And we do need to know about our cultural piece. That is important information. Now, there are ways to teach it that can go in and go a little deeper, you know, can sink down into part of the submerged iceberg, mm-hmm. not just stay up on the top. Yeah. Um, and then there are ways that just stay up on the top. And my experience with working with laboring individuals is that we don't have that much contact with that neocortex where we can really, really think deeply and hard about lists and uh, facts and statistics. Like that doesn't, that's not the accessible part of the brain in labor. When the mammalian brain, that older brain, is really cooking, you know, when it's really going. It's, it's really taking most of the energy, and that neocortex is kind of more subdued. Now, we do all know that the neocortex can influence the mammalian brain because, I mean, let, when we think about um, sexual arousal, sexual arousal is something that we can talk ourselves into and out of, and that's the neocortex communicating to the mammalian brain, mm-hmm. you know, through we can do that and we can do that in labor too we can talk ourselves into and out of a state that will be beneficial and productive in labor by by getting too engaged in that neocortex place which is one of the reasons why uh, doulas can be so helpful is that we can go okay that person has a lot of that information i don't need to retain it Right. I don't personally need to retain it as a laboring person. I can just go into the embodied experience and kind of drop into that more wild Artemisian place. And so, yeah, the way that I like to teach is through a lot of metaphor, through a lot of storytelling, through visuals. I don't use PowerPoints at all in my classes, Mm. not one single uh, PowerPoint. At most, I have my high, my highest tech 
piece in my entire class is a whiteboard. So that just tells you something oh, wow. about. Wow. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's only a myth that more technological is better. <laughs> Didn't so I just say that? Everybody, right? <laughs> everybody knows that. He learned. Yeah, he's learning. I'm doing great. I'm, I'm in. And, and your, yeah. your Artemis and Apollo, the twins, first of all, because she came out and was sort of like the midwife and the goddess mm-hmm. of birth, and you said they're twins, I thought he was going to be like the male doula. I was all excited for a second, oh. but... Yeah. That's, well, you, you know, that's Elliot. <laughs> um, but the other thing is, they kind of strike me in your descriptions of them as allopathic versus holistic approaches to health in general. Hmm. Interesting. Food yeah. for thought. Oh, food for thought. Yes. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. I mean, and that's just one myth. I have several. Yeah. That, let's go. I mean, <laughs> that we do. I, just, I find it fascinating, too, yeah. this interesting thing. Because when I keep hearing you say transition and you think of that butterfly making their cocoon and you can't choose what your cocoon is going to look like or what shape or what's going to come out at the other end. But also we're so used to being able to control everything around us, like from what we eat to what's in it to what we drive, where we go, mm-hmm. that it's like these myths or thinking about the subconscious and this play between the two of giving that person permission like the okay to not be in control, it's kind of scary for people Yeah, because you're not used to it. I mean, yeah. people aren't even used to like not having your phone. What do you do when you don't have that connection to that measured part of our lives? It's such an interesting... Oh, when the internet goes out, it's like disaster. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And it's there's, so there's both the connection to technology, mm-hmm. but also losing a little bit of our connection to our own intuition and our own dropping into, wow, how do I feel about this? You know, what feels right to me? Yeah. And and that piece about um, the butterfly, that's, that's a, a metaphor that I use frequently in my classes because I think it's really powerful. And I'm so glad you brought it up because, you know, we, we'd like to think that the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and just hangs out in the cocoon for a little while and then in Disney fashion jumps out with some wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's not what happens. You know, the caterpillar goes in and digests itself. It becomes goo. Ooh. It dissolves. And it's only after it dissolves that it can remake itself into a butterfly. And I think that can sometimes be like the transition into new parenthood. And when you've worked with with parents, I I heard you say earlier that you're going to maybe do some postpartum work. Yeah. Yeah. I really want to do that. Yeah. And I find that that postpartum period can be a little bit of that that place of dissolving and reforming, coming into something new. And a lot of times we don't like to talk about that. No. Yeah. And yet... You know, we we like to think that we just go into the cocoon and sprout with with butterfly wings. It's like, okay, that worked. You know, woohoo! I'm going to go fly. When in fact, there's so many steps. You know, we have to to fill ourselves up. We have to become that hungry caterpillar that eats and eats and eats and eats and eats. Oh, I'm there. Yeah. And then cocoons and then dissolves and then slowly sprouts the wings and then comes out of the cocoon but then has to dry its wings. And and that metaphor is one that's really good for new parents in that transformative experience of becoming this new thing, this new thing called a parent. And we don't like to talk about that big transformation, and we certainly don't like to talk. One of the the myths I talk about in my dissertation is the denial of death. You mm-hmm. know, we want to, we're the the culture of youth. We just want to stay young forever, and so we don't want to talk about death. And yet, sometimes death is necessary for rebirth, and so mm. that that partial um, dissolving or changing of who we were before we became a parent is is a piece that I think needs to be part of our cultural conversation in much bigger ways. I have zero recollection of who I was before I became a parent. <laughs> it's gone for real. But I, mm-hmm. I, and I also, that, that denial of death, I frequently assume other people are the same age as me, even though I've gotten significantly older than I was. 
But then I meet people. I'm just like, oh, yeah, we must be around the same age. But I'm like 20 years older than now. Yes. Well, I, I completely, completely agree with you on that one. Yeah. I have I have children about to head off to college. So oh, wow. yeah. um, I'm definitely experiencing. But you're still 24. When, yeah. I mean, when I look at, at the homecoming pictures that are you know coming through and I'm like, oh, I was. That's not how young I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those they look, they so, look young. so young. They couldn't possibly. <laughs> Drivers. Are they letting five-year-olds drive now? I have a 17-year-old driver. So, yes. Mm. <laughs> no, you look remarkable. Remarkably calm. I guess you've given up the control. Right. Well, that's part of the process. I'm in the process on the other end of parenting where I have to pull back and say, go fly. Mm -hmm. Go fly. Yeah, Yeah. that's got to be challenging, too. Mm -hmm. I I used to wrestle in high school, and you would train and train and train and train. But in the moment when the match starts, if it's a three-minute round, your oxygen has gone like 30 seconds into it. You can't think rationally. Right. And your coach is on the side screaming out maneuvers to you. They can see the full picture. You can't because you're in it and they have plenty of oxygen. You don't because you're in it. And so sometimes intuitively you'll think, you know, do a maneuver, but you hear your coach shout and do the other maneuver. Um, And partially because of all that rot training over and over again, you just instinctively do it without thinking about it or you listen to what they're telling you and you're able to to win that match and and. The way you describe the doula role is in combination with the seeds that you're planting Mm -hmm. sounds magical. And again, I'll never forget that birth that we did together where four days into it, five days into it, she didn't look afraid. She didn't even look exhausted, really. She just was in this definitely out of her rational brain, not really thinking. She was pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, just really, really inspired was. me. I'm yes. like, I need she to put in more effort in some of the things that I do. Um, but it, she was inspiring to me, and you were inspiring, uh, inspiring me to me because the way she reacted to you four days later. Again, you would think that everything that could possibly be said during labor was already said to her, and every surge was fresh, almost like it was the first one, and one after another. She just made her way there. Well, and as you know, as a doula, sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can say the same thing for four days, mm-hmm. and it still seems to work. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, but I, to. but I, but I do yeah, think it's how it's said it. and how it's yes. received. And you guys Thank have you. this magical relationship. So we don't have a, a lot more time, but if you can tell me more about overall how you can use mythology to prepare for this particular change uh, for laboring. I mean, there's so much room. I'm going to go home and be thinking about the modern myths that you talked about, about surrender and control, which, Mm -hmm. you know, to me, there's a continuum. On one end, there's total surrender, and one end, there's total control. So anything that you do to try to control it takes away from your ability to surrender it. Mm -hmm. But um, you sound like the the programming that you're giving through stories and and through myths uh, really gives an extra tool both to the laboring person and the people around them mm-hmm. to, to sort of help her dissolve yeah. into goo and reform as yeah. a parent. Yeah, I mean, another one of the metaphors, it's not a myth, but it's a metaphor that I use in my classes, is about uh, what I call the river. And the river being that the, the laboring person really needs to get into the water. They need to become the water. In other words, that, that fluid, changing, powerful force that is the water of a river mm-hmm. is very much like the energy of a laboring individual, right? I mean, you've both seen it, so it's like that, that changing where it can at times be an eddy on the side, just kind of spinning in circles. And there are times when it's going over rapids and it's, it's being forced to move fast and tricky spots and it, it's splashing all over the place. Um, there are times when it looks placid on the surface and yet underneath it's going with great force. And that water needs banks. It needs energy to help contain it. So often the laboring individual needs to be the water and her partner or her doula or her team is the banks. Offering that support that says, I've got you. Whatever you need to do, River, I'm here. You need to go over this way, I'm right here. 
you need to go over this way, I'm right there. And you just keep containing and responding. You know, these aren't L.A. riverbanks. You know, we we have L.A. riverbanks down here that are made of concrete. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, we're not talking water, you go this way. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah, there's a responsive relationship between the water and the banks where sometimes the banks, like when it's cutting through granite, it's, it's a harder force saying, I've really got you. And it's intense. But even then, the water can still carve through the granite. And then there are times when it's much more responsive and the banks flex and give way. But if everybody becomes a little bit of water and a little bit of banks, that's no longer a river. That's a swamp. Mm. And you're not getting anywhere. So often in labor, we need the laboring individual to be that water and the partner or the team to be to be the banks. Now, sometimes the partner also needs to get in the river and have some emotion and fluid action, oh. in which case they also need some bank energy, mm-hmm. which is one of the re- one of the things I think is so beautiful about a doula relationship is to be able to be the banks for the couple getting in the water. And often, particularly in early labor, partners do a great job of being the banks for that, those first dipping of the toes into that watery relationship, that watery experience of being in in the river. It's a beautiful analogy. It's a great metaphor. So I use that a lot. Sometimes mom becomes her own banks. Um, so many times where there's swampiness is happening and she'll just find her way over to a toilet or something and sit alone with nobody else and really find her own her own banking. Um, I was using that analogy, certainly been to the splashing portion. Um, I always bring an extra shirt. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I also think using that metaphor, sometimes earlier in labor, let's say, four centimeters into it, maybe just approaching the more active phase, um, you're going to see that more thrashing element. It's more sort of violent looking. And the rational brain will try to kick in and say, look, it's already that kind of violent whitewater rapids, five level rapids. Um, and we're only at four centimeters. So at five or six or seven, you can't imagine how uncontrollable and just violent this is going to become. But magically, through banking, through other mechanisms that kick in, especially if that rational brain quiets down for a minute, which is sometimes our job also, um, at Six centimeters at seven centimeters, it's all of a sudden a really beautiful flow, or sometimes even still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I think that's important to understand because sometimes early on in labor or just in, in the active phase, uh, it can be startling. And to have metaphors like this to realize that the, the you start a, a rafting journey at one place and then someplace else, there are going to be parts that are that are more. Intense and parts that are less intense. And just because you're further down the journey doesn't mean it's going to be more intense. Yeah, it's not a linear journey. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. It's not a linear journey. And the the metaphor that that I use for that is one that I learned through Birthing from Within. And Pam England, my teacher, uh, for, for several years, and that's the labyrinth. And using the labyrinth with all of its twists and turns and its journey of taking you toward the center by often moving you away from mm. the center. Yeah. And that metaphor, I've had so many parents who have worked with me tell me, I can tell you when I had a twist in my labyrinth. I can tell you when I, you know, when this happened and, oh, I'm so deep in it. And what's wonderful also about that metaphor is that when you get to the center, you know, and you have your baby, there's no ladder that suddenly takes you out to who you were before. Mm. You have to make the journey out again, mm. which is a metaphor for that postpartum journey, that that experience of 
staying really close to the center in the first couple of turns and then getting closer to the outer rim and being like, oh, I totally remember who I once was. Oh, wait, now what just happened? And you end up going back in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the twists and turns is, it's again, another way of, of being more of an embodied or nonlinear kind of example to to speak in symbols, to speak in metaphor, so that it's accessible in labor in those times when you might not be having a linear thought, or if you are and you're thinking, oh, if I'm here, you know, we call it labor math, if it's taking me this long to get to four centimeters mm-hmm. then, and we extrapolate it out and say, well, then it's going to be another three days till I possibly right. have this baby, you know, that kind of progression, which we know it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work that way. You're giving me hope that my stock portfolio, which goes up and down, (laughs) might actually end up up at the end of the day. Um, That was, I mean, even, I mean, this is taking it, I guess, a little bit different, but even looking, hearing you tell the story about the river made it, I was just thinking about my birth while you were talking about that. And it, it almost makes it easier if you had like something go on, like you were talking about the swamp and I was like, oh, I remember, I know exactly where my swamp was. You know, but it doesn't make it seem so bad. Like, you know, like, oh, that's interesting to think of it that way. Like it takes out some of the intense emotion that you have. Mm-hmm. Well, or the judgment. Of, yes. Mm-hmm. The judgment. Paper. It's the judgment. The intense yeah. emotion is is perfectly wonderful. Yeah. You know, we all have birth is intense and mm-hmm. it's highly emotional. And so to have emotional experiences, we don't want to make everything super numb. Yeah. In life, like, oh, boring. You know, we want some of those highs and lows that help create this dynamic living called being human. And so we want some of those, but what we don't want is to use them against ourselves. You know, we don't want to have We leave that those... to other people <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> on Facebook. Yeah, and... it's like and so if, there's, <laughs> if there's a metaphor that helps give you a place of, oh, I'm not going to hold that so hard for myself, yeah. then that's beautiful. That's really I mean, that's... That's something that I hope with my classes is to give people a way to contextualize. You know, that's how fairy tales and myth work with children. And so why is it any surprise that that's sort of how it works for us? You know, through fairy tale and myth, we help kids prepare for the monsters and the ogres and the things that we don't yet know how to deal with when we're children. And we find out about them. And myth can do some of that in childbirth as well, you know, help us contextualize things that are otherwise really hard to make sense of. When you first talked to me about uh, mythology and where it meets childbirth, I was very confused. (laughs) As as makes sense. (laughs) Partially, you know, because even the ancient mythologies, I'm not, I'm a novice. I really never delved into them and don't know anything about them. Um, And partially for other reasons, but it it just, spending a little time with you and talking to you and, and getting a sense of what you're talking about, how we can sort of change our perceptions of of these rites of passage, which is also now I have a better understanding. And it's not its not just becoming a parent. It's not just childbirth. It's so much bigger. We, there are so many rites of passage that we have throughout a lifetime. Um, and I can see how this kind of thinking and these kind of um, metaphors and stories and analogies can be really helpful to, to find your way and to, to see things almost in a different paradigm, uh, which is a hard shift to make. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. I am deeply grateful for you and for for your being here today and sharing these things. I'm definitely going to my, my I will not sleep tonight. My mind will be going <laughs> all over the place. Well, I like to say my childbirth classes are not about childbirth, they're about life. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it. Even <laughs> retrospectively like Kristen yeah. did, I know people are going to listen to this and and sort of go back and envision their own birth experiences and other experiences in life and be able to find another, you know, uh, more insight into how they work. I hope so. Um, I, this happens frequently when we have an amazing guest on the podcast. I wish we could go on for another two hours, but instead we'll just have to have you back. Happy um, to. Where can we find you online? Uh, online, my website is com, and my... How did you think of that? 
<laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I do have – I currently have two websites, but we're, I'm going to send you to thebritabushnell.com because that's the one I'm transitioning to. And then I'm also on both Instagram and Facebook as Britta Bushnell PhD. You've come a long way from the whiteboard. Well, my classes, I try and be low tech because that's the part I'm speaking to. But in life, you got to be techy. Yeah, you you got to in today's world. Yes. Um, Kristen, thanks for being here as always. Your insight is also super helpful in your perspective, both as a new mom and as a new doula and as a new prenatal chiropractor. Uh, I always learn a lot from you. So thanks for being here. At home, thanks for listening to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. Do you have a topic you'd like us to discuss? Nothing is taboo. Send us your suggestions to info at informedpregnancy.com and visit us online for lots more pregnancy and parenting media at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash.